الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاه والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى اله واصحابه ومن استنى بسنه يوم الدين فوقيت جيت والله اني لاسيكم لسنه بيانزاع الصحب محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم ومن اوضعه في طرق طاق الوائسنس انتم العفدين Islam came 1,400 years ago. It came at a time which was dubbed or entitled Jahiliyyah. Those who entered Islam left Jahiliyyah. And whenever people committed errors or expressed thoughts which were from the period prior to Islam or were not within the teachings of Islam, it was referred to as having returned to or being a part of Jahiliyyah. Jahiliyyah is translated as ignorance from Jahal. So this is ignorance not necessarily meaning that people were not literate. It is true that that society was basically an oral culture. So information was passed orally. But there were people who wrote. And it wasn't in reference to knowledge in terms of technology or that may be associated with civilization because knowledge was available in the Arabian Peninsula which led people to build society like those that have left their remains till today in the southern part of Arabia as well as in the northern part. The term Jahiliyyah was really used to express a state wherein people were not guided in their lives by revelation. That their day-to-day lives were governed by customs, rules, etc., which were of their own making. Things which they had inherited from generations before. And what Islam brought was divine guidance for day-to-day living as well as for organization of society, community, nation. When we look at the state of the Ummah, the state of the Muslim world today, one can only conclude that to a large degree they are 
similar to the people or the state that people were in at the time when the revelation first came. We are back in a state of Yahudiya, a state of ignorance, where the vast majority of the Muslim world is not guided by divine revelation. The Quran and the Sunnah is not the guiding force in their lives. Their life patterns are based on customs, ideas of their own making or things that they have inherited over the generations. Practices and customs which were absorbed from the nations among which Muslims live or next to which Muslims live. So, for the most part, with the Muslim world being divorced from Revelation, exists today in a state of what may be called 20th century Jahiliya. Now that Jahiliya may be related back to two sources. One I call traditionalism and the other one is what I call rationalism. These represent the two main headings for the trends of ignorance which exist in the Muslim world today. Traditionalism is expressed in the blind following practiced today by much of the Muslim world. Blind following which is fundamentally against the declaration of faith itself wherein we say وَنَشْهَدُ أَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا عَبْدُهُ وَرَسُولُهُ وَعَبْدُ We bear witness that Muhammad وسلم, was the messenger of Allah or the slave of Allah and his messenger. This faith or this statement, this declaration that we make is actually affirming that we will not blindly follow any human being except Rasulullah sallallahu He is the only human being who we will follow blindly. Blindly meaning he tells us to do something, we do. He tells us not to do something, we don't do. Whether we understand why or we do understand why, we just trust that what he has told us is from Allah and we do. If we find out the reasoning behind it, it helps us to understand the commandments and helps us, helps us to be more consistent in applying it, alhamdulillah. But if we don't find out 
It still doesn't stop us from practicing it until we find out. This is what we mean by blind following. Because Allah said in the Quran, May Rasul, فَقَدْ أَطَاءَ اللَّهُ Whoever obeys the messenger has obeyed Allah. And this cannot be said for anyone else. No other human being can we say obeying him or obeying her is obeying Allah. If what they tell us is already in the Quran and Sunnah and they're just reminding us of it, well yes, obeying what they have reminded us of is obeying Allah. But if they tell us things from their own minds, from their own interpretations, their own expressions, and we can't find it in the Quran and Sunnah, obeying them is not obeying Allah. So, that declaration of faith confirms for us that blind following should only take place with regard to the teachings of Prophet Muhammad However, what we find in the Muslim world today is that blind following, what they call taqlid al-a'ma, is widespread, deep rooted. So much so that if a person were to come to the masses of Muslims and try to introduce to them Revelation. Allah says you, and you all are doing that. You go down to one of the um, shrines in India or Pakistan or Egypt, other parts of the Muslim world, where people are there at graves, making tawaf around the graves of human beings, sacrificing at these graves, praying to the, the graves, the people of the dead in the graves. And you try to show them, you know, verses from the Quran where Allah has prohibited such practices or relate to them things from the Sunnah. The Prophet has prohibited the building of structures over graves and, and all these kind of things. He will be rebuked as an apostate, bringing a new religion which is not Islam. They will tell you that what our parents have been doing all these generations, you think that our parents are wrong, you know better than our parents, our grandparents, all these people. Do so not accept it. And you'll find a number of verses in the Quran wherein Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala quotes the pagan response when Prophet Muhammad called them to the worship of Allah. Surah Al-Ma'idah, for example, verse 104. And if you say to them, come to what Allah and His Messenger, what Allah has revealed and to what the Messenger has brought, it is sufficient for us what we found our four parents doing to their response. Awa law kana abauhum la ya'akiluna shay'an wa la ya'akiluna. Allah goes on to say, even though 
their forefathers understood nothing and were not rightly guided. No, the forefathers were in a state of ignorance of revelation. They didn't understand what revelation was, so they weren't rightly guided. It was rhetorical statement. This is the state. If we approach those people today, this is the same as us. We are satisfied with what we are doing. Of course, this is a problem that those involved in Dawah have to deal with, and proper methodology has to be developed to deal with this problem, how to reach these people. But what I'm speaking of right now is not necessarily the methodology of Dawah to them, but the state. What has brought them to that state? The state where they are repeating what the pagans 1,400 years ago said. They are in a state of ignorance like the pagans, involved in all forms of shirk, etc. And when we try to bring them the Quran and the Sunnah, their response is, Asbuna ma wajadna alayhi abada. It is enough for us what we found our forefathers here. There are three main sources, as far as I can uh, gather, which have led to the state of blind followers. One source is the source of bid'ah, innovation, due to customs from, as I mentioned before, neighboring nations or non-Muslims in the middle of the Muslim nation. Examples of this are like the uh, birthday of the Prophet Muhammad celebration of his birthday, the building of structures over the graves, etc. This is what found in non-Muslim cultures. The practice, for example, in India and Pakistan of giving mahar not by the man to the woman, but by the woman to the man. You know, this is amongst the Hindus, this is their practice. That's why we read about bride burnings and all these type of things when they don't get enough mahar, they set the woman on fire and go look for somebody else. These kinds of uh, practices we can classify in general as bid'ah, innovations, resulting from the customs of the neighboring non-Muslim peoples or nations. The second source, major source of blind following is that of Sufism. Sufism, which is so widespread in the Muslim world, that to not be a Sufi is to be strange. To not be connected with some tariqah or some peer or some sheikh or some... This is like unusual. In fact, the common people have a saying that if you don't have a sheikh, then your sheikh is shaitan. If you don't have a spiritual guide, 
then Shaitan is your guide. This is the common truism which is widespread amongst the masses of the people. And Sufism trains people in blind following. From its earliest days, I mean when it took form, as Sufism that we know today, because there are many people who are referred to as being the early Sufis. If we were to believe them, you see when you look at the Sufi chain of uh, authority, they will start with Rasulullah Sallallahu they would say he's the first Sufi. See, and then the next was Abu Bakr. How's that? Well, you know, when Prophet Muhammad was leaving Mecca, going to Medina, and he and Abu Bakr were in the cave, right? He revealed to Abu Bakr that special knowledge. And then, so on and so on, they have a chain which will come down to their local shaykh, you know, where he has the special knowledge and authority, which is why you have to follow him. You become, as I mentioned in the earlier lecture, his murid. Murid being one who has submitted his will to the sheikh. So you'll find all kinds of prescriptions that the sheikh will do to their followers. You know, to, to annihilate your ego. It's what you have to do. You must annihilate your ego so that you can become one with Allah. You know, your, your, your self, your consciousness of self has to be removed, you know. So, they will have you do all kinds of humiliating things. You know, and you read the, the books, you will find that they will tell their followers, for example, to go into town, you know, barefooted, uh, with their socks tied on their head, you know, all kinds of weird uh, things which will make you look so ridiculous in the society, everybody will see you and laugh. And by you walking in an, and being amongst people in this state where everybody's laughing at you, pointing at you, looking at you, you're a clown, you're an idiot. You see, in this way you can annihilate your ego. This is what they prescribe for you, right? A variety of different, you know, different states of their different prescriptions. Or they will give you you know, series of, of, of vicars, right? You know, where you will have to be saying things thousands of times in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. I mean, your whole day is spent just, you know, doing some, what they call vicar or the other. Right? And the vicars, you know, can be either taking names of Allah and just repeating them time and time again, and they claim that this is what Rasulullah did, which he never did. If you read any dua or any prescription given by Prophet it was always in the form of a sentence, a statement, not a word. Just as when we try to communicate with other human beings, right? You're calling on Muhammad to give you a hand. You have a job you're trying to do, you're calling on him to give you a hand. Help me. Give me a hand here. You don't turn to Muhammad and just say, Muhammad, 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 Muhammad. No. <laughs> because if you just turn to somebody did it, they would call the, the ambulance for you to take you to the mental hospital. 
you know, any thinking person will know this if you don't communicate. You know. Or if it is help that you need, you don't turn to them and just say, help, 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 help. What, what help? It's nonsensical. Nobody communicates in this manner. But this is what they have people uh, addressing Allah in this fashion. They will take the names of Allah, Al-Khaliq, Al-Raziq, Al-Rahman, Al-Rahim, and they will just take that name and say it over and over again, Al-Khaliq, 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 you know, to the point where it even becomes unintelligible. If you actually listen to it, it's no longer in question, are they really saying Al-Khaliq anymore? But this is what they have them doing. Day in, day out. Or, they may take a piece of Allah's name. You know, the Naqshabandi, they, they like this one. You know, you start off with Allah who, and then they end up with just who. And you hear them in their zikr circles, they sound like wild animals. Woo, 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 woo. You think there's a bunch of, you know, dogs howling at the moon, you know, in their session. And they believe that they're pleasing Allah in this way and addressing Allah in this way. So on one hand, you know, they involve them in nonsensical absurdities. Them thinking that they're worshipping Allah in a, way, in a way which is totally unacceptable to Allah. And on the other hand, these fears and shaykh, etc., Many of them, because human beings are such that whenever people submit themselves to you, totally, very few human beings can escape the whisper of shaitan to abuse. This is why you find abuse in the society where people who are Cub Scout leaders, you know, church, Elders who deal with young children and they end up abusing children. These children are put in their hands and they're totally submitted to this person. And people like Jim Jones, for example, you know, back in 1979, he took 900 of his followers down to Guyana and they committed suicide down there. They believed that he was God. And he did it when they. People, some of the people who escaped didn't die, you know, who remained in America and they realized really, you know, what had happened and they started to relate to the public what was going on inside of the organization. And it was no end of, uh, of, of uh, corruption. The individual was having relations with little children, with males, with females, on drugs and all kinds of stuff. That's really out there. Same thing when you go and look at uh, this uh, David Quraysh, you know, in the Waco incident there in the States a few years back. You know, he had his followers believing that he was God. He was Jesus Christ, returned. Right? God, in other words. And he was doing the same thing. Abusing. Sexually abusing. They'll accept it. Because they believe you're God. And Sun Young Moon, the founder of the Moonies, same story. And all these different groups, you go into them, you find this is amongst the non-Muslims. 
and in the Sufi cult, you know, the Hindus, of course, well known. Rajneesh and all these others, they're well known for their, I mean, they, they made no bones about it. You know, Rajneesh, he was known as the love guru, right? His thing is the love guru. He made no bones about it, you know. That before you had to rise spiritually, you had to fulfill all of your sexual desires. So they were to just go at each other. And after that, then you could start to grow spiritually. This was his uh, teaching. So very gross, very open. Now, the Sufi group will find the same thing happening. These peers and sheikhs, etc., because their followers are in this state of believing. When you read the, the stories, I mean, historical records of what went on in many of these tariqas over the years, you will be shocked, you know, at what these individuals were doing to their followers, etc. Because they were telling the followers, listen, if you see the sheikh or his deputy doing anything which appears to you to be wrong, don't judge it. You cannot judge it. You have not reached the spiritual plane to be able to understand what is behind it. Just as Khidr and Musa, see, Musa alayhi salam and Khidr, who a number of scholars consider to have been a prophet, you know, a lot of the evidence points towards him actually having been a prophet. Khidr did certain things which Musa didn't understand, may God speak and blessing be upon them. And then Al Khidr or Khadir, is the actual proper pronunciation of his name, explained to Prophet Musa salam, what was behind what he did. He killed a boy. Of course, it's a gross murder. He broke the boat. And then he explained. Okay, so they say it's like this. See Al Khidr or Al Khadir is that Sufi Sheikh. And they teach that he's still alive and around. That he sits with their Sheikhs and guides them and all this kind of stuff. They will claim this. He's an ever-living being. They equate him to Melchizedek of the Christians. If you read in their writings, they claim he's still alive. Walking around on the earth today. He's a special guide for the Super Sheikh, you know. And they give the same kind of uh, relationship between themselves and their followers as Prophet Musa had with Khadr. Which of course is false. It's false. So when their sheikh is drinking alcohol, they will tell him, no, this is not alcohol. It may appear to you to be alcohol. Yes, he took a bottle of Johnny Walker and he's pouring it in his eyes. You can see this, you know. You even went with him and he bought it from the store. And he's pouring it in his glass and he's drinking it. And they're telling you, no, no, this wasn't, it just appears that way to you. But actually, this is, you know, spirits from paradise. This is not the normal spirit that is, you know. They give you some story. And the followers accept this. And they are abused. They're abused all around the world. Actually, when I was in England, 
um, last year they did a special on peers in England. Peers, this is the Pakistani name for the Sheikh, the Sufi Sheikh. And they had this particular peer uh, who, who had molested a number of young girls. And uh, this uh, reporter, you know, who was following the case, he did the interviews with them and what he did and all these different types of things. Right. And what they did was one of the girls, they had her put a camera in her bag and she went back to his home. Now, this is some years later. Right. He had molested her when she was younger. She was now uh, older. She was maybe late teens or early twenties. He had molested her when she was about thirteen or fourteen. And she came back with this camera in her bag to visit him. And um, of course he, she talked to him, he, he remembered. And um, she came asking him for some kind of guidance and he was telling her that, you know, uh, yes, he'll give her the guidance but uh, first she has to come and hug him and she has to to, to wash, this is right on television, national television, she has to wash his penis. And on and on. All of them on record. Then the interview, the, the, the female reporter, she comes back. She has this record, this information, and she comes back to visit the man. And at case interview, she's asking him, you know, about these accusations against him. And he's saying, no, 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 me, I'm, you know, I'm 70 years old, maybe 70 years old. How? You know, I'm just worshipping. They have pictures of him making food and making his prayers and beads and, you know, everything. And me, you know, I'm just a simple man, I'm only trying to help people and, you know. And of course, anybody watching this on national television, you know. And, um, and he said, if you want, I will swear by the Qur'an, he takes the Qur'an, he puts it down, you know, by Allah, I did never did this. This is the state of the Ummah today. Due to Sufism. The third major area of blind following is that of Mazhabism, where people have, in, have inherited different schools of Islamic law. Hanafi, Shafi'i, Hanbali, and Maliki. And those of us that have been exposed to the Mazhab uh, approach to Islam, we are instructed, like the Sufi, everybody must follow a Mazhab. If you don't have an Imam, then your Imam is Shaitan. Same thing. You hear the same story being echoed. If you don't have an Imam, your Imam is Shaitan. You must follow a Mazhab. Now all of the madhabs are correct, they're all correct, you must follow one of them. Of course, depending on the circle you're in, I know when I was informed that, after being informed that I must follow a madhab, I could follow anyone 
technically speaking, I could follow anyone. I was then informed, however, most Muslims are Hanafis. Most Muslims are Hanafis. Furthermore, the Imam of the Hanafis was Imam Azam, called Al Imam Al A'azam, the greatest of the Imams. So the scale is weighed, you know, for the Hanafis. So in my early stages of Islam, I became a Hanafi. After having been indoctrinated, I came home, I told my wife, listen, we are Hanafis. From here on in, we are Hanafis. And, you know, what comes along with it is that um, we were taught there is a special prayer for women. The prayer for women is different from the prayer for men. So when I had, you know, gone out in search of knowledge and I, I studied, they, I learned the prayer for women. I mean, this is a set of acrobatics. The average person, you just can't do it. If you, if you see what the, the Hanafi woman, how she prays, right? If she's praying according to their teachings, properly, you know, going into the different positions is acrobatic. Right? But I learned it so I could go home and teach my wife, you know, how to pray properly. The Hanafi way. And of course, later on, now when I studied, I came to realize that almost everything they were teaching on this prayer was forbidden by Rasulullah Almost every action of the prayer was forbidden. Things which he said, don't do this, don't do that, don't do the other. Elbows on the ground, chest on your side, you know, all the different things. Not bending your back, you know, 45 degrees, but that, you know, everything, all of the different things were the things which the Prophet Sallam forbid. And we know the consequences of madhab fanaticism in the past. It reached a stage after the fall of Baghdad in the 13th century, 1258 onwards. It reached a stage where Muslim judges had the right to punish anyone who transferred from one madhab to another. That was considered a crime. It was ruled in the Hanafi madhab that it was not permissible for a Hanafi female to marry a Shafi'i male. Masjids had two and up to four different mihrabs. Till today you can go to Syria and find masjids like that. There's two mihrabs, three, four mihrabs. One mihrab for the Hanafi, one for the Shafi'i. This is the main two. Around the Kaaba, there were uh, prayer, special prayer places. If you look at the old pictures of the Kaaba, you'll see structures looking like little houses, you know, without walls. You have the roof and sort of the pillars. Four of them set around the Kaaba. These were called the Maqam. You had a Maqam Hanafi, Maqam Shafi, Maqam Hanbali, and Maqam Maliki. You don't want to and when the time for prayer came, the Hanafi Imam, he would get up, the karma is made, and all the Hanafis who were making tawaf were in the masjid, they would line up behind him, and they'd make the salah. When they are finished, then the uh, Shafi'i Imam would get up, make a karma, and all of the Shafi'i who were in the masjid would line up behind him, 
So they had four different salahs going on around the Kaaba. This carried on all the way up until the mid-twenties. Seventy years ago. Up until seventy years ago, this was the order of the day. And though things have settled down, nobody is saying today that, you know, Hanafis, women can't marry Shafis. You don't hear that anymore. And around the Kaaba, we just have one Salah, Alhamdulillah. But still in the minds of many people, the issues of Madhab, most people, issues of Madhab is still very deeply rooted. Deeply rooted. And the approach to the Madhab, which says in fact, that all of the madhabs are correct, puts the Muslim in a state like the Christian, in that he or she has to turn off their intelligence, their intellect, and just accept something blindly. As the Christian is obliged to accept that one plus one plus one equals one, you know, this is, this is something you have to turn your intellect off. Your mind, everything you've been raised with tells you one plus one plus one equals three. But for you to be a true Christian, you must accept that one plus one plus one equals one. Three gods in one. Similarly, for the Muslim, following the mantra, he or she must also accept that something can be right and wrong at the same time. A person can be in wudu and out of wudu at the same time. Meaning, which we talked about earlier, according to Hanafi school, if you touch a woman accidentally, it doesn't break your wudu. According to Shatai school, if you touch a woman accidentally, it breaks your wudu. So, if both are correct, then it means that you can be in wudu and out of wudu at the same time. Which is something against the intellect. Because either you have wudu or you don't have wudu. You cannot have it and not have it at the same time. These two things are opposite, don't, you know, cannot coincide, they cannot exist in one state. So, for the blind follower of the madhab, he or she is obliged to turn off the intellect and accept it. Related to all of this, because with people practicing Islam blindly in this fashion, they are in fact cut off from the sources of Islam. To be in the state, you have to be cut off from the sources of Islam, from the Quran, from the Sunnah. You cannot read the Sunnah, you cannot understand it. Don't read the books of Hadith. Don't you be told. Like Catholics, they're told by their church leaders, don't read the Bible. They're only supposed to take what is given to them by the church leaders 
they're told not to read the Bible by themselves. If they do, they'll deviate. So we're told, don't read that. And in the end, we're told, don't read Quran. Because we are instructed to read the Quran ritualistically, only reciting the text, not being concerned with what is within the text, what Allah is actually saying to us. So, you will find people, you know, back in their home country, they from child, young children, they learn Quran. They have ceremonies, Hatman Quran. You know, and this child has the Quran. Yet today, you will find them in society in the West doing all kinds of corruption. But they did Hatman Quran when they were children. When they were young. So that Qur'an has no effect on them. And the Qur'an is the magical charm. If you want to find a name for your child, the Qur'an becomes the book to find the name. What you do is you take the Qur'an, you know, you just pop it, pop it open, close your eyes, put your finger. You know, whatever word your finger comes on, okay? So you'll find Muslims called Bismillah today. When I met Muslims with this name, Bismillah. You know, I met some sisters, one was named Namal, and the other one was named Nahal, right? Namal means the ant, right? The chapter of the ant. Nahal, the bee. One is called, one's called ant and the other one is called bee. <laughs> what's this message? What is happening to me? If you want to know what to do, you know, we have Salat al-Istikhara. Many people they don't use Salat in the Sahara at all. What they do instead, again, you open the Quran and you they, uh, you go down so many lines and you have a book which tells you what to do. When you open the Quran at random, you go down three lines, go over four words, and the first letter or the third letter of that word, now you take it back to your chart and this will tell you what. If you had a lamp, Lam means you should do this thing and it's better not to do it or if you have meaning it means this. Yeah. People using the Quran. You see the Chinese they have this book called the Ching. They're so thick and depending on how the sticks fall, they open up a book which tells them the sticks fall this way or that way it means this, it means that. They do anything. Or even Salat al Right? People Turn Salat al Istikhara into a crystal ball. Right? The crystal ball of the fortune teller. After you make your Salat al Istikhara, you're waiting for a dream. You know, what comes in your dreams is going to tell you what to do. So that night you have your Istikhara, you find no dream, you try again tomorrow. And the day after, you may do 10, 15 Istikhara until you get the dream to tell you what to do. Prophet Muhammad never said anything about dreams. But for the mass of Muslims today, the answer for Istikhara is the dream. And Istikhara is something where, for example, if my son wants to do something, I will make Istikhara for him. Or I may ask some person I consider to be a holy person, can you make Istikhara for my son too? This is totally at variance with what the Prophet Muhammad taught. This is not Salat and Istikhara. What people are doing today is not Salat al-Istikhara. Salat al-Istikhara 
is when a person has decided upon something. In your heart, you have decided you want to do this particular thing. You make your two rakahs and you ask Allah based on His knowledge of all things, that is power over all things. If this decision of mine is good for me in my, this life and the next, then make it easy for me. To do this, make it easy for me. But if it is not good for me, very simple, very straightforward, very reasonable, Logical. If not, you don't know what to do. You have things in front of you. You don't know which one should I do. You go and make a sakhara. No. The dua is not to deal with that circumstance. You must first check out the circumstance, weigh the pros and cons of the different ones, and then the one you see to be the best one that you now favor, that you want to do, this is the one that you go and ask Allah, is this the best decision for me? If it is, make it easy for me. If it is not, make it difficult for me. This is the proper methodology for istikhara. But, as I said, due to the situation amongst Muslims today, where the religion has become a set of amulets and spells and, and fortune-telling and everything else, we are truly in a state of jahiliya. On the other hand, we have a state of ignorance being produced by the rationalists. That he said was running out. He started late. And I think you all were supposed to start a break sometime around now short break, but um, if you prefer me to continue, I'll continue. Regarding rationalism, wherein the human intellect is given precedence over revelation. This is the essence of the rationalist approach. Human intellect given precedence over revelation. You have under that modernism, the modernist movement, where people have sought to reinterpret Islam, to make it acceptable to 20th century thought. You find a number of individuals, whether it is Muhammad Abdu or this uh, Sir Ahmed Khan or in all the various countries, I'm sure we have them here in Toronto, all around the Muslim world, you have individuals who will be standing up and making statements or writing books or whatever, denying certain Islamic principles that have been known all of, through the centuries, well known in Sharia, denying them or reinterpreting them in such a way as to cancel their effect. 
Our favorite one, favorite area that is usually tackled is the area of polygamy. You'll find a number of people writing, saying that really the recommendation is for one. Really the Quran is saying a man should only marry one. Because Allah says you cannot be equal or just between them, no matter how hard you try. And when he said that you may marry two, three, or four, as long as you're just, you know, this was just like a, a tease. If you could be just, okay, but you can't be just, so it's not okay. Or, as we find in the interpretations of Yusuf Ali, in his uh, footnotes of the Quran, his translation, him telling us that interest, this modern banking institution of the 20th century, this is not the interest of the time of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi it's different, but the same. This is a product of modern day banking, it's another situation altogether. So it's permissible. What is telling you? It is permissible to take and deal in interest. Interest, which is a major sin among the Kabair, about which Prophet said, it has 30 branches, the simplest of which is equivalent to a man having sexual relations with his mother. 70 branches? Possibly. 70? Thank you. 70 branches? Something that is expressed in such, you know, powerful terms. This man is coming and saying is uh, permissible. In the Quran itself, this is part of this modernist approach. We also find an extension of it in the secular governments running Muslim countries today, where they have relegated the implementation of Islamic law to family areas, which they have modified also. And for the vast majority of the laws of the country, they will depend on British, French, German law. Defending that the other laws, the Islamic laws, are not applicable today. They did not say that in so many words, but that is the understanding that is behind the statement. So Muslims will suffer as a result. Many things are permitted in Muslim lands today which are unthinkable in the time of the Prophet and the generations which came after Alcohol is produced in Muslim countries. Prostitution is found in the capitals of Muslim countries. All of the major sins are openly practiced. The third group of modernists or rationalists are those who may be termed the extremists or the terrorists. Now, 
Extremism and terrorism is a term used by the West to apply to anyone who wants to practice Islam. So I'm not talking about it in that sense. You know, fundamentalism. You want to be ruled by Islamic law. You want, you know, Islam to be uh, the governing force in your life. Then you are a fundamentalist terrorist extremist. Not that. This is a misnomer, obviously incorrect. Because from that point of view, every single Muslim would be a fundamentalist terrorist. I'm talking about those who have gone beyond the bounds of the Sharia. Sometimes with good intentions. Good intentions to change the existing state of affairs. They have taken the principle by any means necessary to its logical conclusion. And their banner is Takfir. Not Takfir, but Takfir. Takfir, you know, means Allah Akbar. And Takfir means you are a Kafir. Calling everybody left and right Kafir. This is Takfir. This is the banner. They freely apply this to Muslims. And in the end, it justifies them killing Muslims from all walks of life today in the name of Islamic revolution or Islamic change. You'll find them in the West saying, We are in Darul Harb. We are in a state of war. And in Darul Harb, anything is permissible. So it's okay to take interest. And you have some of them who go as far as to say it's okay to take right hand possession. And all the other things, robbing banks, you know, you have a, you have a whole group of uh, young people in jail in New York City today, between the ages of 18 and 22, who were given a fatwa by a well-known sheikh who is now in jail, given a fatwa that it is permissible to rob banks in America and use it for Islamic causes. For these young guys, because of course Muslims in America struggling in the inner cities, big cities, to try to raise money to build a mosque is very difficult. Land is expensive and the shortcut. We have the fatwa. So they did a string of robberies from Connecticut all the way down to Florida. They hit about 14 or 16 banks. And they turned the money over, you know, to the individuals, you know, but somewhere along the line, one of them is caught, he spills the beans on the rest of them, and now you have young brothers, some of them were in college, some of them just married, you know, they're now in jail for 45 years. 45 years. This is 
despite of the ignorance under which we are suffering. Because we don't have patience. Islamic work is not something which will produce results necessarily tomorrow in front of our eyes, in our generation. This is with Allah. Our job is to plant the seed. When Allah destined for it to grow, it will grow. And Allah will not hold us to account whether it grew or it didn't grow, but whether we planted the seed. This is what we need to come to grips with. And to be patient with the effort to establish Islam, to propagate Islam. So, in summary, we are in a state of jahiliya today because of a trend of traditionalism which has resulted in bid'ah or religious innovations widespread amongst the ummah taking many into shirk and consequently to health Sufism destroying the human's will to distinguish between good and evil committing all kinds of corruption madhabism splitting up the ummah leading to unnecessary confrontations and an overall divorce from the Quran and the Sunnah. And on the other hand, modernism, extremism and secularism, expressions of the rationalist approach, where people use their minds and judge the Quran and Sunnah taking from it what they want and rejecting what they don't want. This is exemplified in that book known as the Bible of Quran and Science, which we distribute quite frequently amongst non-Muslims and such. The first part of the book is good. You know, 90% of the book is excellent comparison with such, although there are some errors in it. Generally, excellent. However, the last 10% of the book is a frontal attack on the Sunnah. This man, who in the first part of the book talked about how the Quran, you know, is perfectly in tune with science and this, you know, because from Allah, perfectly clear. Then in the last part, the last 10% of the book, he starts to attack the Sunnah. He takes authentic hadith out of Sahih Bukhari, like the hadith of the fly. And for him, this is evidence that he cannot trust the Sunnah. The hadith of the fly, we know, is that Prophet said, if a fly drops in the drink of any one of you, you dump him in, throw him out, and drink. Because under one wing is disease, and under the other wing is the cure. So he can't accept it. He's a medical doctor. You know, as we know, the fly brings carries disease. Nobody knows about the fly carrying any cures. So this hadith could not be authentic. Not acceptable. It's a rationalist approach. Which, of course, is faulty. 
It's faulty. Why? Because if a person just sat and thought, if you were to tell a doctor a hundred years ago that taking poison could help people who have heart problems, it would fill your mouth. Taking snake poison, for example, poison, snake poison, it stops your heart. affects the nervous system which keeps the heart pumping, stops it, and you die. But today, in Bangladesh and other countries, snakes are farmed, their poison collected, sent to the laboratories in Austria and elsewhere, and extracted from the poison portions which are used for heart patients today. Or, for example, those who, you know, work with explosives. Everybody knows what nitroglycerin can do. Right? And this is one of the early major explosives. Somebody told you, listen, nitroglycerin, a person who has heart problems, is good to take. Drink. <laughs> look at you and laugh. You know, you, you drink some nitroglycerin, you shake him accidentally and he blows apart. You know, you mad. Now, but today, heart patients are given nitroglycerin. So, so see, the fact of the matter that the fact that we cannot determine something today doesn't mean, uh, you know, we don't see the, the, the cure which is in the slide doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It just means that we have no knowledge of it. That's all. And we know the snake himself has the antidote to his poison. So he has both the poison and the antidote because if he didn't have the antidote, he would kill himself. Every time he bit some, some other animal, the, the, the poison is released, he swallows it and dies. And there are many uh, plants in nature that are known to carry both harm and the cure for the harm in them. So, proper use of reason would have brought our doctor to his senses and kept him from attacking the sunnah in the name of reason. And there's a well-known, there's a well-known case to me which I usually quote in this regard concerning the sleeping on the stomach. You know, we have hadith where Prophet Muhammad said to some of his companions, he caught them lying or sleeping on their stomach, and he told them, don't sleep on your stomach. Because it's a way of sleeping which Allah does not like. So they did. A few years back, some years back, I was asked about this. Why are we not allowed to sleep on our stomach? And, of course, when I was with some group, they had some explanations, but they were not really suitable. They said, uh, if you sleep on your stomach, you know, and you're traveling on Jamaat, it's easier for you to have a wet dream. What about women, you know? Is it the same? So I, I, I didn't want to pass that on to anybody. I heard it, but, you know, I just left it where I heard it. So I just told them I didn't know. But shortly after that, I was traveling, and um, I was flying actually to Guyana. I was in Panama when I was after. I was flying to Guyana. And uh, on the plane, the Time magazine issue that I was reading, just happened to be reading, was all about major uh, scientific medical uh, discoveries and developments in operations on the spinal cord, the spine. 
they showed all the different techniques that they were using, new techniques, putting steel pins and you know, separating vertebrae and all kinds of things. You know, fantastic stuff. At the end of it all, after, you know, looking at the various problems the, the, that require these operations, they had a list of doctor's recommendations. Number one on the list was, don't sleep on your stomach. And they went on to explain it. Because when you sleep on your stomach, the backbone is not supported. The heaviest bony structure in your body is not supported. What is in front of it is all soft organs. So it sags downwards. This is the, the major cause of curvature of the spine. You know, people, the old people who walk around with their backs, you know, their curved backs in old age, they can't stand straight anymore. This is the major cause. Sway back, this is the major cause of it. So they recommended you sleep on your side and they put added in added with your knees then. This is what the Prophet himself did. He told us not to sleep on our stomach. Sit it on your back or on your side, but not on your stomach. So, the Muslim Ummah that followed this guidance for the last 1,400 years was fearful. Furthermore, about four years ago, researchers in England doing a study of the causes looking for the cause for, for, for a uh, particular uh, medical problem known as cut death or SDS, sudden death syndrome, where young babies, two years old, three years old, they're put to sleep and they just die in their sleep. No, for no apparent causes. What they did was they did interviews with all of the parents, or many of the parents, each number of the parents who had, this, had children that died from cut death, and they gathered data around the children, meaning what was the temperature of the room that children were put in, where they were covered in the covers, you know, uh, what was the type of mattress they were on, you know, all the different information. They gathered up all the information and put it into the computer to try to find what is the common factor shared by all these. And the common factor they found was they were put to sleep on their stomachs. And so they made a big thing, front page news. Doctors advising mothers to not put your children to sleep on their stomachs. Though this has become common practice. You know, nurses are going to say, put the child on the stomach. If he has, you know, upset stomach, put him to sleep on the stomach. It's one thing to let them lie temporarily, but it's another thing to put them to sleep on their stomach. Because as the research responded, they said, this was a major factor behind heart death. And, in the end, we have a very famous hadith found in Sahih, a Sahih hadith found in Abu Dawood from Ali radiallahu anhu who said, لو كان الدين بالرأي لكان أسفل الخطي أولى بالمسح من أعلاه وقد رأيت رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم يمسح على ظاهر خطيه. If the religion was based on reason, purely rational understanding, logic, then wiping the bottom of the sock should more properly be done than the top. There's reason, logic. Why? Because if we're making wudu, what are we doing? We're washing our body parts. These are the parts exposed. The arms, the face, feet. We wash them. 
the cleaning, the cleaning process. So, when you take off your shoes and you walk around, what part of your sock is getting dirty? The bottom. So now when it comes to make wudu and you're going to wipe, logical, you should wipe the bottom. But he said, but I saw the Messenger of Allah wipe the top and not the bottom. So he was relating to us something that we have to keep in mind. But yes, we have reason, we have logic. There is reason, logic, and religion. But it is not for us to use reason and logic where the Prophet has said this, finish. We submit. We wipe the top, we wipe the top. Nobody can come to a top and say, but it is more logical to wipe the bottom. No. More logical to you. And perhaps if I listen long enough, it might be logical to me. But Rasulullah wipe the top, and that's what I'm following. This should be our approach. That revelation is given precedence over reason. Not that we just cancel reason, we try to understand, etc., but if we don't understand, in the end we go with the revelation. In closing, having identified this major problem, we have to ask, what is the solution? Because it's nice to know the problem and to be able to analyze it, but then we need to know how do we solve it? How do we resolve it? How do we correct it? And as the problem is simple, that people are not guided by revelation, the solution is simple. People have to be guided by revelation. Meaning that our focus should be on education. So this situation in the Muslim world is not going to change until we educate Muslims correctly. The situation is not going to change by just, I know somebody said, no, if we get the Khalifa, this is the solution, getting the Khalifa. If we knock off this leader and we put in a righteous leader, this is going to make the change. No. Because if the people, you know, that's what they try to do in Trinidad. Hmm? Do you all remember Yasin and the brothers? Coup d'etat approach to revolution. If they came into power and the masses of the people don't want Islam, or they're totally ignorant of Islam, they're practicing Islam or whatever else, do you think that you can impose and force something? This is why the prophetic way was building the foundation. You educate sufficient numbers of the masses, then they will determine the leadership. Because that is, is a hadith that the Prophet mentioned too, that you get the leaders you deserve, something to that effect. It's the people ultimately who determine the leaders. If they're ignorant, they get ignorant leaders and ignorance prevails. If they become conscious, they become aware of what is required, then they will demand the kind of leadership which they deserve. So it is from the bottom up, not from the top down. 
This is the correct methodology. And for us, practically speaking here, it means going back to the issues of establishing Muslim schools. Schools here and throughout the Muslim world that combine Islamic education with what we are now calling academic or secular education. In fact, they're one. And we shouldn't look at them as two. Even a school in which you teach mathematics and physics and chemistry and biology, and then you have one period of Islamic study, Quran. This is not the solution. Because that approach puts in the mind of the student a dichotomy, a state of schizophrenia. There is religion, and then there is life. You know, your day-to-day -day life, you have to deal with it. Academics to deal with your day-to-day -day life. And then there's religion, another thing. There are two separate entities. It should not be. When you're teaching science, or you're teaching English, or you're teaching mathematics, it should be taught by Muslims, and taught from an Islamic perspective. I know people might say, well, how can you teach mathematics from an Islamic perspective? You know, the basic principles of mathematics, the timetables, algebra, and all this. How do you teach that from an Islamic perspective? Well, one, you can let the children understand, young people understand, that Muslims played a major role in the development of mathematics. Wherever there are terms, which their origin is in Arabic, from Muslim scholars, etc., so you inform them. So they are aware that there is no separation. This is Muslims who produce these things. Furthermore, there are many mathematical issues that can be found in the Quran, can be found in the Sunnah, etc. This can be introduced in the course of the lesson. So the students are learning something of the demon. It's not really teaching deen, but you're showing them the relationship. Well, this is an area which requires, you know, a concerted effort to tackling with each and every subject how this can be done. But believe me, it can be done. The Muslim scholars of the past, who were specialists in optics and astronomy and uh, algebra and physics, they were also scholars of fiqh and hadith, etc., etc. There was no different, with all part of the knowledge. What is true of it is from Allah. What is not is from man, from shaitan, who gets it. So, we require today a new approach to education, whereby our goal is to produce Muslim graduates who recognize their obligation to the Muslim community, not feeling themselves independent, that I can do with this marriage as I please, anything, it's my life, I can do it as I please, but that it is by Allah's destiny and the efforts of my community that I am here. They sacrificed for me to be here, and I owe it to them to give back from what I have learned 
in their service. For whatever field I'm in, I serve the Muslim community, I strive to use that for the benefit of the Muslim community, and I contribute some of my time, if I'm a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, free services to those amongst the community who cannot afford My sadaqah, my field, my specialty, I provide these services to the community. This is what we need to build and to change the future. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم وسائر المسلمين وكل ذنب فاستغفروا إنه هو الغفور الرحيم. We'll leave the situation for questions. Yeah. Yeah, we'll roll straight into the second session which was question and answers anyway. So we'll just proceed on. Uh, we're going into now question and answers. If you live in a Jahiliya home where your parents and relatives practice traditionalism and rationalism and they forget the Sunnah, what do you do to practice Islam while they influence you more than you influence them? Well, if one is too young to be on one's own, then obviously you have no choice but to live with your parents, continue to live with your parents. And what you try to do is to spend as much of your time when you're out of the home with people who are aware of proper Islam, trying to practice proper Islam, that you can benefit from your contact with them. You can uh, attend lectures, read books, listen to tapes, discuss, you know, you have as much interaction and contact with those who can help to guide you and keep you on the correct path. It's a struggle in that circumstance, but of course one has to be patient. And perhaps to help in the home circumstance, one may invite some of the older brothers or sisters who may come with their family, whatever, to visit you at home ostensibly to visit you, but really their purpose is to convey uh, proper Islam to your parents, you know, to do it in an indirect way. And of course you're going to need to bring somebody who is tolerant, you know, able, be tolerant in the sense of being able to tolerate, you know, things from your parents which will not set them off, you know, you don't want to bring someone in the house who's going to make your situation worse where they end up in some, you know, verbal battle with your parents, you know, cursing each other out and leaving, you know, then you were in a worse situation than you were before they came. So somebody who is able to hold his or her temper and uh, patiently deal with uh, older people, now you may do this to help uh, affect your parents, whilst you, through your contacts, can uh, try to maintain your own spiritual development as our friends play a major role in our own Islamic development. This is the third time I'm trying to get this question answered. I guess I, I didn't want to cross it the first and second time. Sorry about that. My question is, is it permissible for women to wear pants under the dress or skirt. 
Yes, it is permissible. Where can I read something that is sahih about this matter? Because I was told there is a hadith on the subject. Thank you. Islam. The point is that if somebody were to ask you, is it permissible for a woman to wear a t-shirt under her blouse, leave out the skirt under your pants, under your uh, pants under your skirt. What about a t-shirt under your blouse? Or a scarf under your head, under your khimar, or something that or a bow in your hair. Ah. You see, the thing is that these are not religious acts. Keep in mind the basic principle in how to deal with actions and things in Islam. The principle goes like this. All acts of worship are haram unless there is a specific statement of Rasulullah to say, do it. There's one thing. All acts of worship are haram. Except if there is evidence from the Sunnah, direct evidence to do it. All acts, food, etc., which uh, from our day-to-day life, which have nothing to do with religious acts, etc., are all halal, except if there is a specific hadith which comes to forbid it. So you don't have to go looking for a hadith which says you can wear pants under your skirt or a t-shirt under your blouse. Anyone who says you cannot, they're the one who has to produce the prohibition for you to do so. This is the point. So as long as what you are doing doesn't fall under any of the clear forbidden, like Prophet uh, um, said that Allah curses the, the women who imitate men and the men who imitate women, right? Women who imitate men, men who imitate women. This is talking about those who either imitate women in their uh, mannerisms, you have some men who become very effeminate in their mannerisms, or women who take on more manly mannerisms I mean, deliberately. You know, because this is, these are the signs of homosexuality and lesbianism. You know. This is forbidden. Or people who we may call transvestites, you know, cross-dressers, right? And this, uh, what's the guy, Rodman? You know, this uh, basketball player who has his hair colored orange and green and stuff like this. You know, he sometimes he comes to in, into interviews wearing women's dresses. He's, he's called a cross dresser, right? This kind of behavior is forbidden. So, wearing earrings, for example, you know, this is a woman identified as a woman's means of. Uh, decoration or ornamentation for men to wear rings in their ears specifically in the that's in the vast majority of cultures where this is standard for women for men to go and put rings in their ears you know wearing 
bracelets and necklaces and things like this which are normally associated with women's dress, this is forbidden. So, ants in and of themselves were not specific, specifically and designated for men. Today in society, such as pants are normally worn by men, but women, there are cuts of pants for what that are female, identified with female dress. So, it is not a requirement that a woman to go and seek a hadith to prove the permissibility of wearing pants under the skirt or t-shirts under the blouses, but for those who prohibit it, it is on them to prove it. There's an announcement that there is a lecture in Arabic starting in 10 minutes in the cafeteria. For those interested, there's an Arabic lecture starting in 10 minutes in the cafeteria. Is Salafi a madhab? Madhab means a way of thought. Right? Or practice. If we mean that it is a madhab like the Hanafi madhab and the Shafi madhab, no. It's not. Imam Abu Hanifa was a Salaf. Imam Malik was a Salaf. Imam Ahmed was a Salaf. And Imam Shafi was a Salaf. Salafi, well, the term Salafi only refers to a way of looking at Islam, which was in accordance with the teachings of the Prophet That Islam should be understood according to the Quran and Sunnah as understood and practiced by the companions of Prophet Muhammad and the early generation of Muslim scholars. That's all that Salafi means. So, some people have turned it into a group or a movement. This is the Salafi movement or the Salafi group. But actually this is a mistake because then we're falling into the same trap of uh, other uh, movements, etc. It's just Islam. There is only Islam. We were called Muslims, as Allah said in the Quran about Prophet Abraham. Before we were called Muslims, and this is the name that we were given. The term Salafi may be used to express how one may look at the implementation of Islam, but not representing a group or a movement, etc. It is Islam. We are Muslims. We try to follow Islam as the early generations of righteous Muslims did, following their methodology, understanding as they understood. Brother, regarding following the Prophet, what determines a Sunnah, for example, yesterday you said it's not necessary to sleep on a mat as the Prophet did, 
To what extent should we follow the actions of the Prophet What makes an action of the Prophet Sunnah? Actually, this is the topic of a lecture in and of itself. Perhaps, you know, this needs to be proposed to the mothers, sisters who organize the conference. And this is an, an area of understanding Islam and its application which should be thought should be well understood. Because Prophet Muhammad was both a prophet guided by revelation and he was a human being living in the 8th century, 7th century in Arabia having his own personal likes and dislikes. Those things which are particular to him, Islam is a universal religion. What he has commanded us to do, instructed us to do, etc., are the things which are applicable anywhere, anytime. The things which are particular to himself, which are his own personal choices, etc., those are not considered a part of Sharia. They're Sunnah. So Sunnah means the way of the Prophet The Sunnah includes the things which he did personally, which we have no obligation to do, as well as the things which he said we must do, the things he recommended us to do, the things he told us which was, which was disliked for us to do, the things he prohibited. All of that comes under the general heading also of Sunnah. And it is important for us to distinguish between the things which are not obligatory for us because if we make those things that are not obligatory obligatory that we need to do these things then we can start